Uh, uh, hello, everybody. Um, welcome to this public event here at the uh, LSE, uh, organized by LSE uh, Ideas, uh, which is the foreign policy think tank uh, for foreign policy at the LSE, which Arnie Westad and I put together, created and constructed a few years ago, Arnie, back in the year 2008. Um, this is a very special lecture series, I, I, I should add very quickly. Uh, it's called the Engelsberg Lecture Series. Uh, it's sponsored by the Axon Johnson Foundation in Sweden, to whom we would once again like to say a very big thank you for investing in us and I hope having confidence in us as well. The first lecture series last year was delivered by Michael Burley, who looked at populism in many, many aspects. And I'm very pleased to say that we've got, again, Arnie Westad here, who's going to look at empires in very many, many aspects uh, as well. I'll introduce Arnie in a moment. I'll just say who I am. Uh, my name is Professor Michael Cox, or Mick Cox. I came to the LSE in 2002, worked with Arnie, creating a Cold War Studies Center, and then we went on to build uh, ideas. I'm a founding director of LSE Ideas. I'm still in the international relations department, at, at least in name. Um, so I'm very, very happy to be welcoming back my old friend uh, from, uh, well, I'd say from Norway, but he's at the moment uh, living in the United States based at Yale. Arnie uh, Westhead has, of course, a very distinguished and long, and I'd almost say a peripatetic career as well, Arnie, meaning that in the very best sense of the word. Arnie was born in the very beautiful town of Alessund on the west coast of Norway. I think you did your first degree at the University of Oslo up at Blinden. Uh, you then did your PhD in the United States. Uh, Arnie then moved back to the Nobel Institute uh, to work with the great Norwegian historian Gerd Lundestad in the 1990s, working particularly on Cold War history, Cold War history and bringing people who'd been at the coalface of the Cold War, literally, to interview and did some brilliant work coming out of that, Arnie, if you don't mind me saying, because I'm sure you don't, but you did. And uh, that's when I got to know about you and we ultimately met. You then very wisely took the decision to come to the LSE, I think in the late 1990s, and that's where you and I got together and created the Cold War Study Center and later ideas. Arnie, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to put it, Arnie, then took the boat, as I say, to Harvard, um, but, but he then moved northwards uh, to Yale, where he is now based uh, teaching uh, and researching there. Arnie doesn't need too much introduction here today. Uh, a wonderful historian of the Cold War, uh, which I've mentioned before. Uh, a great historian of China. And you know, I'd say, if I know anything about China today, Arnie, it has a lot to do with you and our teaching together at Peking University in the, in the early part of the 20th century. Great times they were too. And hopefully one day we might go back and do it again. I'd certainly like to do so. And, of course, on the questions of empires, which Arnie will be exploring here today in his uh, second lecture. Uh, Arnie's going to speak for about 45 minutes. We'll then move to questions and answers. This session will end at 5.15, but we'll have plenty of time for Q uh, and A. Uh, Arnie is going to give a broad, I, I won't even say broad, panoramic world history Dating from 1800, he's going to take 1800 as his starting point year, and I think look at the world of seven um, empires. 
I don't think anybody else could attempt anything so broad and so ambitious as my good friend Arnie, Arnie Westad. So Arnie, welcome back to the LSE, and I'll pass pass the baton to use that phrase uh, over to you, Arnie. Thank you, Mick. It's always a feast to be introduced by my my old friend and colleague, Mick Cox. Uh, we worked very closely together at the LSE for many years, as Mick said. Um, I learned a lot from working with Mick, uh, not just about academia, but about life in general, uh, and finding my way to a lot of pubs that I didn't know of around London. It's a pity that we can't meet in person for this, as you will see, those who tune in for the first time, I have the old theatre behind me, still my favourite lecture theatre in the world. Harvard and Yale have some fine lecture theatres, but they don't come close to the old theatre at LSE in terms of atmosphere and in, in, in terms of debate. So it's a pleasure to be with you, even though it would have been better to do it in person than bundled off to the White Horse for a point afterwards. But I will do my best, even, this is, even if this is virtual. So last time we discussed what empires are, how they form, how they behave, and then finally how resistance to them grows over time. And in many ways, different ways, we need to overtake uh, the central purpose of these empires. And we ended on the note last time that empires are not always agents of order. We tend to see them that way, right? We tend to see them as, as large units that come in and establish their order, whatever we think about that order, you know, on a, on a regional scale. Uh, I argued in ending the first lecture that quite on the contrary, um, they are very often sources of chaos, uh, both as they go through internal transformations, which we're going to talk a lot about today, and of course in their dying days, when, when empires are more the cause of chaos and confusion uh, than almost any other force that we can think of internationally. And sometimes, I think it's important to underline this, empires spread more chaos than what their opponents do. Um, since the latter, the, 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 the alternatives, those who want to set up an alternative order, at least have a sense of what that order should be. Um, though it might be, as we have seen both in the 19th and the 20th century, a very localized order, as opposed to the imperial orders, uh, many of which tends towards some degree of, of the universal. And of course, there is a, a lot of literature on this. I, I like William Dalrymple's The Anarchy, very well titled about the British East India Company in the in the late 18th and early 19th century. Antoinette Burton, uh, written a trouble trouble with empire, where she goes through some of the same some of the same ideas. So the purpose for today's lecture is to try to take stock, take stock of empire, as Mick said, on a global scale, around 1800. The transition from one kind of empire in the 18th century, or rather two kinds of empire. I explain that in a in a moment to a very different imperial world in the 19th century. And I will now try to share my screen with you. So this is what the empire, the world of empire looked like uh, roughly in 1800. You will see that most of the world is divided into empires. And then there are a few smaller states, um, some in Europe, but most of them Afri actually in Africa. 
Um, most of them set up outside of imperial control in Africa, some in, some in Southeast Asia. But the world in 1800 is a world of, of, of empires. And it's this that is the starting point for this lecture, um, how this imperial world went through several transformations, um, including one then again at the middle of the 19th century, um, from these European empires created for exploitation and extraction to the empires of the late 19th century that are much closer to our own day and age and which I'll deal with in my next lecture. Um, empires connected to what we usually call high imperialism, which emphasize control, emphasize improvement, emphasize forms of paternalism. They, they are not less exploitative than the earlier empires, they do it in a very different way uh, and with a very different sense of order and law. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later on. They also, of course, in the late 19th century, uh, propagated the representation uh, in political terms and in legal terms, at least for the racial offshoots within empires. Think of what became the British uh, dominions. Uh, so race became a much more important issue, I argue, towards the end of the 19th century than what it had been before. It had never been unimportant, as we will see, but it became more important as the, uh, as the century uh, developed. And then finally, what happens in this time period we're going to talk about today is the mid and late 19th century merger between empire and capitalism. So empire and capitalism have always been connected, as I argued in the last lecture, but they come together in new ways and much more forcefully towards the end of the 19th century than what they have ever done before. So now I can also give away part of my own interest in looking at empires uh, in the 19th century, the long 19th century, if you like. Um, this is the writing project that is at the heart of my interest in the reconstruction of, of empires. I'm trying to do a biography of this man, uh, James Bruce, the eighth Earl of Elgin. So his years are 1811 to 1863. And the reason why I'm interested in James Bruce is that he in many ways symbolize the reconstruction of the British Empire in the mid 19th century. Uh, from this raw exploitation that I was talking about over onto supervision and hegemony. He also is very central to the inst institutionalization of imperial rule, um, which is best shown in India, where he was viceroy uh, the final 18 months of his life. And before then, he was uh, governor of Jamaica he, at the age of 30. For those of you who haven't achieved much by the age of 30, you can see what can be done. Uh, Governor General of Canada, um, and then the British negotiator for treaties with China and Japan. And given that he died at 52, it was, it was quite a life. And it's, it's a life that, to me, brings together many of these traits that I'm trying to, trying to uh, understand with regard to empires and imperialism in the 19th century. I should, by the way, at this point, thank the people who have enabled me to do this, first and foremost, uh, Charles Bruce, Lord Bruce, who is in charge of a fantastic archive up at Broomhall, 
um, which we can use for understanding uh, people like James Bruce, but also the broad transformation that I'm talking about with regard to the British Empire and empires in general. So there are a number of themes in James Bruce's life that interest me. They interest me as a person as well, but, but besides that, there are some themes that are, are, are of great interest. Slavery and emancipation, which I'm going to talk more about later on, and which Bruce encountered when he first uh, became governor of Jamaica, right after emancipation. The issues of race, ethnicity, religion that followed him throughout his life and are central, as I've already said, to the transformation of empire in the mid 19th century. The subjugation of Asia, which is a really important part of this transformation, um, went on roughly during Bruce's lifetime. And of course, he played an instrumental role in, in two of these events with regard to China and Japan. And then finally, and perhaps a bit more surprisingly, the rise of the United States, which was another leitmotif in, uh, in Elgin's life. So uh, as first governor of, of Jamaica, one of his big concerns was um, plots among the white planters in Jamaica uh, to join the United States and thereby keep black people uh, in some form of servitude, hopefully going back to slavery, many of them wanted, uh, wanted to do that, uh, as part of the United States rather than part of the British Empire. And this, this challenge from the new great power that is rising follows him throughout his life in Canada, not least, in ways that I find really, really, uh, really, really interesting. So if you want to look at uh, North America for that time period, um, it's also very important to be aware of the uh, transformations that are going on. This is the um, northern part of the Americas um, in, in the early 19th century. Um, you see how much that is still disputed, how much that is still unclear. And it's only during the 19th century that this form of North America that, of course, is going to be essential in the imperial history of the 19th century, but also essential for the whole development of 20th century history up to now. It's only during the 19th century, even we could say the middle part of the 19th century, that that transformation takes place and the map starts looking very, very different um, from what it does here, uh, mainly in forms that advantage um, the United States of America, um, but also you know, Canada coming together in ways that would have been dif difficult to foresee. Um, Mexico transforming itself, of course, into its own, uh, its own republic after the Mexican Revolution. So empires in the 18th century is very much about change. Um, we see some of the changes here. I'll go through this in a, in a moment. I think it's important to start with the economic changes that take place in the 18th century and up to 18, the year 1800. Uh, so what some people had come to, to call the Great Divergence, which is in its essence a Polanyi, uh, Polanyi uh, term, but which Ken Pomerantz used for his, uh, his wonderful book a decade and a, and a half ago. Um, and what that basically means is that uh, parts of Europe and the rest of the world start to develop in very different ways. And if we look uh, first at the right here on the screen in terms of GDP and our 1820, you see how relatively slow 
that process was, right? So in 1820, China and India were by far the world's largest economies, and it would take a long time for that pattern to change. You'll see in the slide a little bit, a little bit later on. Um, if we look at the top left, some of the text missing there, but this shows the development in terms of manufacturers, um, you see that uh, the development of the United States starts out from the mid 19th century, so of course decisive, but also the relative advantage that the British Empire developed uh, compared to uh, competing uh, European empires and, and states. And if we look at the lower left, you will see uh, GDP per capita and, and how that develops, and again, in ways that advantage Britain. Uh, over other countries, though others are uh, catching up, particularly the United States and, and other European powers. So the main point I think here is that this is a period of tremendous transformation. Um, ruled on the side of some European states by science and technology on the one hand, and the extraordinary access to resources through empire on the other. So exploration exploitation, the development of maritime um, technologies come to advantage certain parts of Europe over the rest of the world. But it's also very important to realize, as Ken Pomeranz argues, that this is not the same thing as saying that the rest of the world stood still. It developed in many ways, as we will see later on, uh, quite decisively from the framework that came out of the 18th century. But parts of Europe changed more and changed, changed in ways that would have been hard to foresee from the mid 18th century onwards. It wasn't even all of Europe. It was a few areas. It was parts of Britain. It was parts of the low countries. It was even smaller parts of France and Italy where this tremendous economic change took hold and where it radiated out of. So this is a process and it's a, it is a gradual process. Um, the land-based empires coming out of the 18th century in many ways still have an advantage around 1800, but it is an advantage that for the reasons we are seeing here is slipping. So if we go 50 years back in time to the mid 1700s, uh, Qing China was almost certainly the most powerful country in the world at that point. Uh, the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire still dominated the Middle East with ease. Uh, Spain and Portugal, which of course were sea-based rather than land-based empires, but different from the developments that we are seeing in these parts of Europe, um, still held on to their own empires, even though the peak of their power had, had passed. So what this leaves us with coming out of the 18th century is really two expanding powers before the United States kicks in. And those two expanding powers are Britain and Russia. And they expand in, in very different ways. Um, I'm gonna show you a map of Russia here uh, and how the Russian um, expansion took place here going back to the, going back to the 16th century. So uh, Russia, uh, expanded overland towards the east and towards the south and to some extent into, into Europe as well. 
Um, well, Britain um, started its economic transformation at home and then moved from that on to developing um, naval supremacy, so a strong emphasis on, on naval power. Not enough to keep the 13 colonies in North America in check, but enough to be predominant in a lot of other places. India maybe especially, which we will return to later on. And of course, establish an economy based on overseas trade in natural resources, in manufacturers, and in slaves. So by 1800, more than 60% of British exports are not just maritime, but transatlantic. If you add all of the maritime trade to it, you get a, a picture of what the British Empire looked like around 1800 that really shows its real, its real character. Uh, it has moved away from the kind of European framework that had existed earlier on and really become, in many ways, the first real uh, global power. Um, now, Russia's expansion eastward is also really important in order to understand this. Um, uh, very strong emphasis on military organization and on technology. But it was a different kind of expansion than what you saw uh, on the British side, even though the two were going to become strong rivals through much of the, much of the 19th century. Um, uh, one could say that uh, on the Russian side, uh, militarism was the key element in the expansion. Uh, the expansion was undertaken in order to feed a military administrative machine that was remarkably powerful. In Britain, increasingly, the driver seems to me, at least from the early 19th century, to be emergent capitalism. But in most cases, the expansion came out of economic and social systems that could make use of additional resources for something else than personal enrichment. In many ways, the first dividing line that I want to talk about today uh, happens just around 1800. So during the Napoleonic Wars. And the reason why this is so significant in terms of the development of empires in the 19th century is that it fast forwarded the military technology that European powers uh, would employ in the 19th century to basically conquer the world. Before the Napoleonic Wars, I think it would have been relatively easy for big land-based Asian entities to stand up to imperial, uh, European imperial expansion, at least if they get, got their politics and their organization together. Um, after the Napoleonic Wars, that's not true to the same extent. And to me, much of the answer to why this changed is in terms of military technology. When you spend 20 years constantly uh, at war, then of course something changes in terms of both the specific technological aspects and the organizational aspects of warfare. And for Britain, what changed, especially, of course, was naval technology uh, and, naval, and naval warfare. Um, but there is something else that comes out of this time period as well. And that is um, the political and ideological aspects of the French Revolution that come together in the French Revolution. The idea of popular sovereignty. So the idea that in some way or another, uh, political institutions, systems, rulers 
should be dependent on some kind of mandate from the, from the people. Very much a minority view, of course, in the early, uh, in the early 19th century, um, but still one that grew uh, and grew into becoming, during the 19th century, the strongest argument against empire. How can you argue in favor of empire if you are dependent on some form of public acceptance of your rule, expressed acceptance? Uh, of course, in Britain, by the, the ruling elites, this was entirely written off. The idea was that you could keep all the institutions intact as a kind of reaction against the uh, French Revolution, both in Europe and, and, and elsewhere, but then try to do away with the exploitative excesses of uh, early empire. So um, um, my uh, friend and, and former colleague at LSE, Sujit Sivasundram, has written a wonderful book about this that's just uh, out called uh, uh, Waves Across the South, where he looks at the impact of French revolutionary ideas across the Indian Ocean. Very interesting stuff, highly recommended for understanding this particular challenge to, to empire earlier than, than um, what many people have thought about before. One had to create an empire for a purpose. The idea that conquest and exploitation was no longer enough as a kind of justification for empire was very strongly held and, and developed. So one of the biggest problems, of course, with trying to transform em empire into something that looked like empire by cons consent, uh, if not Gerlundestad's uh, old formulation, empire by, by invitation, was to do something with perhaps the worst excess of early empire, namely slavery. Empire, as I argued last time, was to quite some extent built on slavery. And this is especially true for the British Empire. Uh, profits from the slave trade were invested in the development of British industries. Um, resources such as cotton and sugar uh, helped create critical surpluses at home that contributed to the rise of British economic power in ways that are often, uh, even today, often, often overlooked. I think the best estimate of the slave economy's contribution to the British GDP around 1800 is about 11%. This is Klaus Rundbeck's um, estimates. Um, but much of that was, of course, sheer profit that provided capital that could be reinvested to British banks and there, thereby delivering the critical surplus that was needed for industrial development. So this idea that slavery was a, was a, a sideshow in terms of how the British economy developed, I think is entirely, entirely wrong. But it came up against the ideological difficulties that existed in terms of dealing uh, with uh, these kinds of issues. So Britain outlawed slave trade in 1807 and then went on to abolish slavery in 1833, including in Jamaica, where it was prevalent, and uh, which is what James Bruce met a few years later when he came there as governor. So the idea with the abolition of slavery in the British Empire was a better organized empire and an empire that could fit in better to the new demands of a industrializing uh, capitalist economy. Uh, Jamaica, again, is a, is a wonderful example of this. So instead of 
setting people free with emancipation, they were moved over to uh, apprenticeships that they had to take by law uh, in order to prepare to become proper workers. And of course, locally from the planter's side, the idea was that these apprenticeships could last for a very long time, if not, if not a lifetime. Another challenge uh, to empire in the mid 19th century comes together, I think, very illustratively in what I call the Indian Revolution, sometimes known as the mutiny in the mid 1850s, 1857, 1858, or the, or the peak years. And I think the Indian Revolution in the 1850s might be best said to be a widespread revolution against oppression and poverty. And the response from the British imperial side is very, very interesting. So what you get is a transformation of empire, not an abolition of empire, but a transformation of empire with a new administration, a new financial system, and not least a new army to, to control the British-held parts uh, of Asia. At the same time, Britain promised rights to Indians. To Indians, rights of a very unknown uh, kind, but indicated to be similar to those of other groups uh, of the Queen's subjects. Um, so this development, you can see the map here, this development um, uh, from uh, the chaos of the East India Company, uh, the composition of various parts of the Indian Empire, into the British Raj, into a, a consolidated, coordinated um, British India, took place always under pressure by people who opposed um, the empire and the way it functioned in the, in the first place. Uh, and it was based on ideas that Indians could become subjects similar to other groups of, of the Queen's subjects, which implied in essence, some form of representation that in reality never came, but was held up in order to keep empire together. So this is one essential part, I think, of understanding the mid 19th century transformation of empire. Uh, it wasn't enough anymore to hold up the traditional forms of empire based on conquest something new, something more based on ideas of integration, coordination had to be put in its place. The idea to me seems very much to be that one could have empire on behalf of and for the advantage of colonized people. I mean, that was not the way most colonized people themselves felt it, although there were always elites among the colonized who were willing to buy into this. Uh, but in overall terms, it was an argument for empire that worked much better at home, that worked much better in Europe, uh, in Russia, worked much better in the United States. When the Americans have their big discussions towards the end of the 19th century about whether a republic could also be an empire. And then they're not talking about empires for exploitation, which would have been politically impossible. They are talking about the universalistic ideas uh, ideas of civilization that they believe that they could bring to the rest of the world. That is often implied going to war against the very same people uh, that you thought you could 
improve to universalistic values, well, that's, of course, something that has stayed with us in terms of empires uh, all the way up to our own day and age. Now, it wasn't just India that went through a transformation in terms of how to understand empire in the mid-19th century. I spoke at the beginning of this lecture also about the subjugation of the Qing and of the Ottoman Empire, which happened in very different ways in the mid-19th century. But as a result of the drawback from these big Asian land-based empires, you get a completely new form, new shape of the world when you get into the late 19th century. Gone is this idea that the Qing would really fight as an empire on equal terms uh, with Western empires, although they certainly did their, did their best. Gone is also the idea that uh, by just holding on to territory, you would be able to project your power. That's, of course, the technological revolution that pushes in the direction of, uh, direction of something very different in terms of our concepts of power. Um, in many ways, a process that has lasted all the way up to today. When we are still discussing, I was in a, in a discussion about this last week, how to measure power uh, between the United States and, say, China in relative terms. What is it that matters and you know, matters most? Um, because technology today is at the core of this, but we can trace some of that development back to this transformation of empire in the 19th century. So I think some of you who know my earlier work will now start to see how some of these things come together. I'm interested in figuring out what it is from this transformation of empire, which we're going to talk much more about in its, in its 20th century form uh, on the next occasion when we meet. What is it that has carried over onto today and made the world uh, that we are seeing today with the challenges that we that we have. So, with regard to the Qing, uh, the Chinese Qing Empire and the Ottomans, uh, their demise happened in, as most of you will know, in very different ways. Um, for the Ottomans, it happens both from the side of um, Britain and from Russia. Uh, they're hacking away at it in various forms all the way through the, the 19th century. What's interesting about Qing and about China is that the Qing uh, empire, its cohesion in many forms held. You know, it was able to defend itself. Um, it was able um, to stand up against the challenges, not fully. It lost out, as I've already said, in competition with, with other empires, but it was capable of keeping much of its integrity, its uh, territorial integrity, not least, in place for a very, very long time, which is the reason why the People's Republic of China today looks the way that it does. Um, if it hadn't been for that, China probably would have been divided up, as so many other parts of the world were under European uh, pressures. But even though it was able to keep at least some of its territorial integrity, uh, in fact, um, I'll go through this map in a minute just to, to show that, uh, it still lost out in the competition with other empires, um, meaning primarily Western empires in the, in the 19th century. Though, uh, as you will see from the map, you know, Qing China still looks 
remarkably similar to the People's Republic. Uh, I don't know if you can see this on the map, but the, you know, there is territory that's lost up in the northeast, so along the Pacific coast, was part of Mongolia, established itself as an independent republic, and part of some of the possessions um, in, in Central Asia are gone. But beside that, this is a map of China that is remarkably similar to uh, the map of China that we see today. It's in this competition between Qing China and other empires that we re-encounter our friend uh, James Bruce, who I mentioned earlier on. Um, this time, uh, as the British representative, during the what we know as the Second Opium War, um, when he was the one who was sent as the British representative to insist on the full opening up of China, to, to foreign trade and the setting up of foreign trade stations and the full acceptance by the Chinese empire of other empires as their equals, which in reality, of course, meant the subjugation of much of what the Qing were doing under, under Western empires headed by, by Britain. When the Qing uh, understandably dragged their feet in agreeing to this, uh, arrangements, not just with regard to the opium trade, but with regard to trade in general, trade that was set up in order to serve the West. Uh, the British and the French, eventually also the Russians invaded. Um, uh, James Bruce, leading the imperial troops, uh, went all the way to Beijing in, in 1860. Uh, here we see him entering into Beijing um, in in the year 1860. But the reality was not the kind of triumphal entry that you see in this picture. The reality was a very bloody war um, and the destruction of parts of Beijing, most well-known, including well-known to Mick and myself, who've been going for walks there, the destruction of the old summer palace in, in 1860. Um, the old, the emperor's old, Summer Palace, Yuan Mingyuan, uh, in Beijing, um, ostensibly as a punishment for the murder of British captives uh, during, the, during the war. Um, here we see, this is before they actually get to Beijing, some of the very, very tough fighting that took place uh, in order for uh, the British and the French troops to come all the way up to the Qing capital. The Qing troops, I think in this case, they are Mongolian troops. Oops. Um, attempted to make use of the new technology that they had also started to get hold of um, to defend the empire at a terrible, a terrible cost. So the idea here, and I'm trying to bring this together now at the end, the idea here, I think, that we have to bear in mind is that by trying to take possession of the world in the late 19th century, by expanding further uh, through main, mainly through military action, as we will see in the next lecture, uh, the borders of European empires. There was a certain idea of order that these powers wanted to introduce. It was no longer just about conquest and exploitation, uh, even though there was a lot of that, as we see in this in this gruesome picture. But it was also about trade. 
was a merger with ideas of capital and capitalism. And maybe first and foremost, it, there was at the core of it, the core of it for Lord Elgin as well, the idea that Western concepts of law, Western concepts of governance, Western concepts of civilization should be the driving force behind empire. And anyone who stood up to that would be defeated and, if necessary, immediately moved out of the march of empires. Now, we've seen this before. We talked about it in the last lecture with other empires earlier in history. So this is not something that is unique to Western empires, but it breaks through in a very strong sense in the late 19th century. And the burning of the Yuan Mingyuan, the, the destruction of um, the summer palace of the Qing emperor in 1860, the reason why that was undertaken is in many ways a symbol, a fitting symbol of this transformation in imperial thinking. Um, several people have written about this. Eric Ringmar, who was for a while at the LLC, has written a book about it, quite, a, quite an instructive book. But the best way I think of understanding it is by going to the texts of the time, uh, what eyewitness accounts actually um, provide us with in order to understand the purposes of the destruction and thereby the implicit purposes of Western Empire towards the end of the 19th century. Now, I'll finish by reading one of those eyewitness accounts to you. It's an eyewitness account by a British officer who, who saw the destruction of the, uh, of the old summer palace. Before sunset, he says, of the 19th, that's the 19th of October, um, 1860. Every place had been fired and the troops were marched back to camp. We were among the last to leave and we passed the summer palace on our return. Flames and smoldering ruins deterred our passage every way and unhappily many of the peasants' houses adjoining the contagious fire had also now uh, started to be alight and they were fast being reduced to ashes. We passed the chief entrance to the Yang Yuan and watched with mournful pleasure the dancing flames curling into grotesque festoons and wreaths as they twined in their last embrace round the grand portal of the palace, while the black column of smoke that rose straight up into the sky from the already root-fallen reception hall formed a deep background to this living picture of active red flame that hissed and crackled as if glorifying in the destruction that it spread around. Good for evil is a hard moral for man to learn. But however much we regretted the cruel destruction of those stately buildings, we yet could not help feeling a secret gratification that the blow had fallen and the murder of our hapless countrymen revenged on the cruel and perfidious author and instigator of the crime. So there we have it. We have now moved on to an empire of law, but an empire of law through destruction. And much of this is going to be at the core of the development of empires in the 20th century, which will be the topic for the next lecture in this series. Uh, Arnie, thank you very, very much indeed.
for that uh, extraordinary uh, tour de force, tour de raison. Uh, I'm going to raise just one or two questions and uh, then move on. I've got a lot of questions already coming in, uh, Arnie, which I'm going to pose to you. We've got half an hour to do this. I suppose my first of I lived in Scotland, you know. Uh, I've lived in all parts of these islands, as you know. Scotland, uh, Ireland, and, and indeed Wales before coming, coming back to London. And, you know, Scotland was an extraordinary experience for me. I mean, apart from learning that they probably had better universities than England at that time <laughs> in the 18th century. Um, but also the whole role of Scotland and the Scots in the formation of the British Empire, which really comes out in your lecture through the particular individual of the of Elgin himself, who, who's... who's um, Landed estates, of course, were were in Scotland, and I'm not asking you a question about it, Arnie. But I think when people yeah. think British Empire, maybe they think too much, say, of the English alone. Whereas, of course, others within the framework of the so-called United Kingdom played a key role in that, whether as soldiers, as preachers, uh, traders, naval people as well. And it's quite interesting, you know, the person you're going to write a, a biography of, I think, fascinating, is is a Scot. It's not to say it's the Scots alone, don't get me wrong, but I mean, there's a very important uh, multi, a, a United Kingdom dimension to empire, I think. Arnie. Perhaps you could just pick up on that because sure. it always interested me when I was in Scotland, thinking about Scottish history, you know, and as part of a larger British history. I'd just like, like to reflect on that, Arnie, for a bit. It is a fascinating uh, set of ideas because, uh, as you know, Mick, this goes back to the 18th century, even the, the late 17th century, with the settlements that gradually took place within Britain, the idea of incorporation of, of Scotland and Wales then to begin with, and then gradually also the attempted uh, integration of, of Ireland. Which is very interesting when you think about Britain as an empire. Right? We, we talked a little bit about this in the, in the last lecture. So the British mm. imperial expansion is an English imperial expansion to begin with uh, that first encompasses the neighboring countries right, and integrates those and then moves on wider into the world. So uh, this is one, one of the reasons why I've always been saying, and I know that, that, that you have been supporting that point of view, that if you want to understand British imperialism, you, you really have to start with these islands and you have to, to mm. start perhaps with Ireland first and foremost, but also things that can be taken from, from Scotland and Wales. So the reason, I think, why so many people, not just elite people, but others as well, from the countries that had been, in many ways, through subjugation, drawn into the British Empire, that they formed the imperial vanguard as the empire rolls on, you know, overseas. I don't think that's all that difficult to understand. This was the opportunity that was given to many people, including impoverished uh, Scottish aristocrats like, like James Bruce, in order to make a good living for themselves overseas in a world that they would be seen as equal to other Brits, which they weren't always at home, even when we get into the, to the 19th century. I think that's the key here, um, more than anything else. And, and we see that in many empires, not just in the British Empire. Mm. Um, you, you see it in Russia in terms of people who are moving east. You see it in the United States. Mm. As that empire expands, right, in the late 19th century, who is it that breaks up from the east and move west? It's people who think that they can do that in order to get away from discrimination and away from 
kind of, of uh, subaltern existence mm. that they have at home. So I yeah. think that's the background, but it is an interesting, very interesting. No, it is, it is certainly, and I, I you know, that, that's very. It's an important way of thinking about the empire, at least the British Empire. The English, in a sense, had to conquer their, their own islands first in order then to form a foundation for their own expansion over the next two to three centuries. The other thing I'd say, and it's not really a question, it's more an observation. You look at that wonderful map you put up of, uh, I call it North America, because it's not the United States, mm. in, in 1800. And you kind of think, if, if you're going to make a prediction about the next 100 years, which, of course, is impossible, as we know, uh, and, and you kind of look at... Great Britain itself and what it what it was and what it possessed. If you're kind of sitting in 1800, you're very unlikely to predict that 100 years later, the United States is the largest economic power in the world and that Britain, by the end of the 19th century, you know, has achieved such imperial domination. I mean, not quite sure how you answer that, but, you know, looking at those position of America, position of Britain in 1800, you're looking forward to think, well, who's going to win? And you're not entirely certain it's going to be something called the United States, or you're not entirely certain it's going to be someone like Britain. That's one that, as you know, uh, has preoccupied better <laughs> brains than me for a very, very long time. What is it that creates that transformation? Mm. And then that ongoing transformation into the 20th century, when it sort of really takes off. So the United States, when... Lord Elgin encounters it, and, and he's very, very uh, uh, keen uh, as an observer of this, is starting its forward march. But the idea that that within two generations, two generations would mean that it would overtake the British Empire as, as, a, as, a, as a power, at least in productive terms, was, mm. was, was nowhere to be seen. So I think there are two things that create this, and they actually both connected to the lecture today. One is the question of resources, right? So, and the ability to extract resources on a continental scale. So Britain had, through its maritime activities, access to a lot of resources, but it also had, as I said in the lecture, to negotiate its way in terms of empire in ways that were not always necessary for the continental empires. So the Americans, to put it bluntly, didn't spend all that much time trying to negotiate constitutional arrangements with Native Americans, right? uh, or the Russians, in terms of their expansion eastwards. So this has nothing to do necessarily with the constitution of empires, or even their ideologies. It just has to do with the difference, in my view, between being land-based and being sea-based. So the world sort of swings back when we get to the late uh, 19th century and the First World War, to advantage those who have easier land-based access to resources. Mm. And then the, the, second, the second part of this, um, of course, uh, has to do with the challenges, the, 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 the problems that empires start to get into in the late 19th century when resistance against empires from indigenous peoples all over the world really start to explode. Um, because they're... The colonized people for Americans and for Russians were relatively weaker than what they were for the British or the Spanish or the French. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a very important part of the, uh, of the consideration here that helped them through the First World War to create two supercharged superpowers 
that became the United States of America and for much of the 20th century, the Soviet Union. Absolutely, Arnie. Fascinating stuff. Look, we've got lots of questions and I don't want to monopolize your time, although I'm tempted to do, but I mustn't do that, must I? Um, <clears throat> question here from Adam, Adam Faraday. I think, I hope I'm getting your, your name right there. Uh, it's about manifest destiny and its importance and whether or not the, exp- I know you're only stopped ending at 1800, although, of course, you went further on. Is it the case that what happens to, what becomes the United States, is that exactly the same form of dynamic imperialism that the Europeans are doing? In other words, there's no American exceptionalism here, is there, Arnie? Uh, Adam doesn't bring that in, but I wondered if you could, because I've always thought that, you know, America, Americans, if you like, without with all due respect, kind of think it's all exceptional, whereas it seems to me that what's happening in, in the 19th century is actually not too dissimilar to what the Europeans are doing in the rest of the world, whether it's Asia and Europe, they're conquering. They're, they're eliminating other great powers like Spain and France. And of course, they are putting it rather bluntly, you know, stealing the land of the natives. So is it a very similar dynamic, whatever Americans themselves may say about it at the time? They thought it was freedom and liberty, but it's very similar, isn't it? Well, so part of the argument here, of course, Mick, um, as you alluded to earlier on, part of the argument in this lecture, is that it is about um, Uber and freedom, probably in, in you know, set up like that. For many of the European empires that expand in the, in the 19th century, particularly from the mid-19th century onwards, uh, I mean, this fiction that what imperial powers are doing is to, to liberate the people they want to colonize, is not only restricted to the United States. Now, it does come mm. out in uh, much more solid, um, much more uh, integrated ideological forms in the United States than what it does in Britain or, mm. or, or in France or even in Russia. Um, but the motives seem to me to be, to be very, very similar. And of course, there is another uh, difference as well. You know, the... Um, just like one at least used to, I hope not these days, to say about surgeons that they could bury their mistakes, right? For US imperialism, one could say the same thing. You know, it was much easier to pretend not to be an empire when you could exterminate or drive away the people uh, who were on the land that you wanted to colonize. So I talked about this in the first lecture um, that, you know, there are, there are, settler empires, and the United States, of course, is the biggest settler empire uh, there is. Uh, But by being a settler empire, by taking over massive amounts of territory, not not all of it, but, you know, not all of what became the American empire, but much of it, and settle it with its own people as the predominant group, uh, empire in many ways becomes invisible, you know, as Daniel Limawa and, and others have, have argued recently. So that would be my response. I mean, I don't see that many similarities in terms of imperial development, but I see the, some differences in terms of ideology, but maybe particularly, you know, more in terms of practice, uh, in terms of what actually happened on the ground. Okay, and again, I've got lots of, lots of interesting questions here just to follow up. This is just a broad one. I mean, you know, the greatest empire until the 17th century, of course, was Spain. And let's not forget uh, the, the extraordinary extent of the Portuguese empire. Again, here's a large, large question from Sal, Sal Witte. How would you begin to explain the decline of Spain and Portugal, particularly, I suppose, 
of the Spanish Empire, which was formidable. I, I, even on your even on your North American map, the Spanish Empire is not just South America or Central America. It extends deep, very deep into, into North America itself. How did this extraordinary formation, do you think, decline? Or is, is well, I think there are a few things that are important with regard to Iberia and the Iberian uh, seaborne empires. Um, the first one is that we sometimes tend to focus too much on their decline. They did decline eventually, but it took a very long time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So before the story that I was telling today starts, both Spain and Portugal, in very different ways, are among the most significant imperial powers all the way up to the, to the middle part of the 18th century, and some extent beyond that. So the, the collapse, you know, doesn't really happen um, until the early 19th century, and of course the, mm -hmm. the Portuguese Empire, it is part of the Portuguese Empire, continued up to the 1970s, and it's therefore That's a part of, of Cold War history, you know, as, as much as, as imperial history. I think the decline came for, for two reasons. So, and both of them are connected to what we talked about today. One has to do with technology and the development of technologies. Uh, both Spain and Portugal, having functioned very well as empires for a very long time, in many, many ways been superior to the British, who were sort of imperial scavengers, you know, back in the 17th and possibly even, even early 18th century compared to Spain and Portugal. Uh, they had the sense that this kind of arrangement could last forever. And of course it didn't. It was overtaken by people who had better technologies and better instruments of warfare, particularly at sea, where they were the most vulnerable than what they themselves have. So it's not, you know, the rise of Britain as a, as a, as a maritime power and, and the final collapse, especially of the Spanish Empire, was of course intimately connected. So that's one, that's one issue. The other one is economic. And without you know, sounding too Marxist about this, I, I do think that what is lacking both in the Spanish and to some extent, at least in the Portuguese case, is the ability to accumulate capital and to put capital to work in a developing manufacturing and then eventually industrializing economy. I mean, again, that didn't happen because there wasn't really much of a need for it, right? because the resources that were available were so massive that if it hadn't been for pressures of economic and, 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 and naval development elsewhere, as Paul Kennedy has argued very effectively, you know, these empires probably could have had a very long life even coming out of the 18th century. So, you know, again, one has to concentrate, I think, in order to understand this, on where development happens and where it happens very quickly. And yeah, then see thanks. the consequences. I, consequences. I, had, I had a teacher in my old school many years ago who, who had a great love for the Ottoman Empire and got me fascinated in it as well. He said, please don't start with its decline, because if it was declining, it was going on for 400 years, declining, according to certain accounts. And indeed, what brought it down in the end wasn't its internal problems necessarily, although they were real, uh, but was the, sec was the First World War. They chose the wrong side, essentially, in 1915. Well said. Well said. So yeah, Very I mean, that this is how, think about the Qing, for instance, how they, you know, how they finally, how they finally collapsed. But, you know, you remind me of this old quip about the, the Byzantine Empire, where it was said to have spent a thousand years in continual decline, and to mm. which the response is not bad. You know, <laughs> not, a thousand years of continual decline, there must be something. That yeah, produces. yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. Which, which brings up a question which segues from something else you said earlier on. I think it's from Ralph Schroeder, if I'm getting your name there, Ralph. If I'm not, I do apologize. 
it's the relationship between empire on the one hand and I suppose industrialization on the other, which of course is a title of a famous book by uh, somebody you know and I, I know, uh, now, now deceased, uh, Eric Hobsbawm. What is the connection, do you think, if any, Arnie, I think you used certain figures there earlier on, between, let's just take Britain as our model here, or at least our guide. What's the, what's the connection between using about the surplus taken out of empire, which included slavery, of course, and, and indeed British industrial development in the 19th century? There's a huge literature on that, but maybe some reflect because that also compares to Spain. Because there was very little investment back in Spain. I mean, it was silver and gold, and it maintained a, a peculiar economy or different kind of economy. In the British case, clearly there's, there's industrialization. Do you think there is a relationship, or do you think it can be sometimes overdone? Yes, I think there is a very close relationship. Thanks for that question, Ralph. Uh, and you know, the best writer, as you indicated, make on this is uh, is Eric Hobsbawm. I mean, mm. you know, if you can. You can you can look at him. You can also, since I know Ralph has an interest in this, uh, Michael Mann's wonderful uh, four-volume work on on power uh, and, and power shifts, which I use with my students here at Yale in teaching, is also very very good at this, and and you should look it up. So, I think the 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 point here is important, particularly for our next lecture that. There is something that happens in coming out of the 18th century, as I tried to describe in the lecture, that enables the privileges um, those empires that are already making a transition to the kind of capitalism that we see then gradually developing in the, in the 19th century. So it's a slow process, much slower than what people generally think. But my firm belief is that without empire, it would have been an even slower process. Uh, I talked about this when I, I spoke about slavery today, right? So the just the income from uh, slave-based economies uh, that came into Britain was very significant around 1800. It would actually grow even after British uh, abolition because of the significance of cotton, as um, a number of recent writers have um, have pointed out, Sven Beckett in his wonderful book on cotton, at least. Mm. So I think empire is critical uh, to understanding the transformation of 19th century capitalism and, and how some aspects of capitalism were privileged over others. But the literature that we still have, that we have on that is still very weak and it's something that we should try to explore. I will, I will start indicating some of the things that I think we should look more closely at in the next lecture. So you, you have to hold on for that, Ralph, for the next uh, uh, Okay, 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 Ralph, you know one another, clearly. Um, okay, I've got a, a nice provocative question for you. It, I'm taking the second half of a question from David there. David said, uh, Neil Ferguson, whom, whom you and I know, of course, and you know, prolific writer on finance, uh, German, German finance house, very interesting work. Later work on the British Empire, as you know, the BBC series, etc. But Neil, Neil Ferguson makes the argument, does he not, that there were aspects of imperialism, not the same thing exactly as colonialism, but, you know, there were aspects of that which, uh, I don't want to say need defending, but there are aspects of that which I, I use the term very loosely, were progressive, or at least laid the foundation for certain things that we don't want to ignore, even though we may want to be critical of so many aspects of empire, the racism, the conquest, the, and the things that you showed, of course, from the Summer Palace, which is still pretty shocking, even 
even today to see that all those downside things but neil ferguson tries to make what how do you how do you engage with the kind of arguments that neil makes which i'm sure are not desperately popular amongst many people but how would you engage that kind of argument on look i mean to me this is an impossible debate i mm. i mean the the i think what neil is trying to do is to say well look there were a lot of people individuals um who went to imperial project to the colonies from britain and from, from other countries with intentions of not destroying and subjugating but trying to develop and hold up we, we will see that in the 20th century but it is important to understand the context in which this happens and you can never get rid of that in the in the colonial setting so whoever good intentions are and i'm sure neil has a lot of a lot to be said for that um the framework in which it happens is uh, a framework of oppression and subjugation i mean that's inherent in the imperial in the imperial idea from 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 start to finish it transformed the world you know and it's possible to say that something that you do not think it is particularly beneficial still transformed the world you know and and that's in part the reason why i chose to do these lectures on this topic i mean knowing full well it's a controversial topic you know especially in britain these days in order to make some sense of the driving forces behind it but it's those that you have to see right in order to make sense of this it's not so much about the you know the actions of individuals or even the motivations that are there i mean particularly as we get closer to the end of of empire right uh it's the it's the framework it's the bigger picture that you have to understand you have to understand it i mean that's part of the reason why i chose biography in order to try to get to terms with this in terms of both the results of imperial expansion and transformation and the motives and the thinking of individuals that were part of it so not all uh, imperial officials were devils who were out to destroy and yeah. and, and subjugate others but that's yeah. the way ideology works right yeah. that's yeah. how it is being formed and how it's being formulated and i you know i think lord elgin is a, is a perfect example of that yeah. because he is someone uh, who in terms of what he wanted to do saw himself himself primarily as a source of of order uh you know in the in the broader sense and and an order that that would benefit everyone in in the mm. long run what he didn't see of course that in reality he was part of transforming an empire that became better at oppressing the people who he was working among mm. uh, and also the uh his predecessor has i think a real problem in Greece today in terms of the elgin marbles as well arnie So indeed which is the reason why to, to, to claim why for their own had to go and work in 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 the colonies because it <laughs> uh, we've got a great question here if i could say from i think it's Samuel Davis at the Open University about you used the word motive a little while ago i mean you do that fair enough you dealt with so many other things so well mm. about motivation as you know there's a very very large debate which has gone on now for i, I can't remember how long What was the driving force of this? Are there simply separate drivers for each empire, or is there just a single driver which is wealth creation, economics? You know, you've had, you remember the old debate we've had with the old sure. Marxist debate. You mentioned Marx and the Marxist interpretations, and which of course is quite complicated anyway. Mm. What what is driving this, Arnie? Is it just about economics? Is it largely about profit? Is it largely about the accumulation of capital? 
So it's not just it's not just about economics. Okay. I mean, I, I do think that's an important point to make, and I, mm. I I tried to make this in the first lecture. It does become broader about economics in mm. in the nineteenth century for for reasons that I, I I just explained. But empires have of course existed well before uh, economic motives, in a narrow sense at least, became the driving forces for much of what happened uh, in international politics. Um, Religion has played a very important role in the expansion of empires. It did uh, prior to the transformation that I'm, I'm looking at here. We did to some extent throughout the 19th century, although uh, diminishing, um, uh, diminished by uh, expansion that happened for economic gain. So I think it's very important to bear in mind, not least for those who have uh, read both uh, Marx's view, which basically was that imperialism, at least British imperialism, advanced imperialism, uh, was a source for, 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 world, for positive world historical transformation. And those who are looking at Lenin's understanding, very economistic understanding of what uh, empires is, is about, to understand this critical point, which, which Marx does make, but hasn't often been picked up on, is that the, the drive towards empire in the mid-19th century comes out of economic and social systems that can make use of these additional resources for something else than personal enrichment and glorification. Right? Mm, mm. That's why this becomes a universal system deeply wedded to, to, to expanding capitalism. And I think it's very important to see that, right? Um, mm. You know, because if one goes ahead and sort of economizes all of this in, 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 in a narrow mm. sense. One doesn't understand how it changes over time. And not, mm. not least, one doesn't understand, you know, how central to the transformation when we come into the 20th century and up to our own day and age, the, the relationship between empire and capitalism has been. Yeah, I, I, I've always thought it's a bit of a phony debate, Arnie. I mean, you, you know, you get, a, you get a complex series of inter interconnected factors, but one factor which has been raised by one of our, uh, Roland, uh, about religion in all this, Arnie. I mean, you know, we, we ourselves may now live in a much more secular age. The people you're talking about certainly did not live in, in, in a secular age, quite, quite the opposite. To what degree do you think many of the imperial ambitions of many of the people, not just in Britain, were themselves also driven by a sense of Christian civilizing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Or in the Ottoman case, of course, you know, a rather different kind of religion in the state of Islam. How much does religion play in this? And we shouldn't leave it out, I think, Carly. What do you say? No, I think religion does play an important role, or, or, or roles, one should say, because it's mm. different, as you indicate, in terms of different settings and different time periods and, 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 and different people. Um, using James Bruce as an example here is actually quite interesting, because very different from most young Scottish aristocrats of, of his time, uh, he was a deeply religious person. He was someone who we today would call an evangelical Christian. Mm. Uh, very uncommon at, at that point. Um, uh, probably more common, actually, as you move further into the 19th century um, and, and towards the end of the century, in many ways, in terms of the British Empire. But what that led to for him was a constant conflict between his own conscience and his own idea uh, about how to behave as a Christian and some of the demands that empire put forward. And I'm just now working on this with regard to Jamaica, where, of course, 
it was mainly missionaries, mainly Baptist missionaries, uh, who were underlining the rights of black Jamaicans uh, in order to not just break out of slavery, but become full citizens of their country. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and Bruce's view, even though he sympathizes with much of this, is that for the sake of empire, this has to be done very, very gradually. So mm. he, you know, as a Christian, he ends up uh, opposing slavery, opposing mm. this form of subjugation, not least on religious grounds. There were many of those. Uh, but at the same time, in order to serve empire, he would argue that emancipation, uh, uh, citizenship has to be a gradual process. It has to be built both on the needs of empire and on the learning process of those who had been enslaved before, which doesn't quite fit in with many of the ideas that mm. he has as a Christian. Mm. So that tension is really very, very interesting in the 19th century. Well, that's right. I, Only... Britain. I mean, it, you yeah. know, you can't do it sure. in no, I, I'm actually, I've been enjoying this so much, Arnie, as always, as indeed do, during the first lecture. I actually forgot to notice the time has run by us. And so, uh, as I said earlier on to all the people listening, and thank you very much for listening in, tuning in, viewing, um, we've now come to the end, Arnie. So there are a lot of other questions. I try to bring in as many as possible, uh, but I just wonder if you could um, say goodbye to us. We're saying goodbye to you. We have to leave now. But again, Arnie, thank you very much. And we'll see you, I think, on March the 30th for your third Engelsberg lecture. Arnie, thank you so much. Thank you, Mick. This has been, wonderful, as always, wonderful, wonderful sharing, good questions. Looking forward to the next two lectures. Okay, Arnie, thanks very much. Bye. Bye now.